Amen. Well, this morning is our second message in our uh, Lenten sermon series. And after this, we have two more messages in Psalm 51, where after we will turn to the Gospels to celebrate Palm Sunday, and then Good Friday, and of course, Easter Sunday. And again, the intention behind turning to Psalm 51, a psalm of repentance and restoration, is to deepen and to bring meaning in our journey toward Easter as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in the kingdom, that's simply how things work. In order to go up, one must go down. In order to be exalted, one must be humbled. In order to know the joy of salvation, in order to know Easter Sunday, One must know the despair of sin. They must know Good Friday. And so our time in Psalm 51, therefore, is not so much to wallow in our sin as to deepen our dependence and thankfulness for God's grace. And so last week was our first step into that process. And we took a rather unflinching look at the nature of our problem. Absolute truthfulness with ourselves And with the Lord, we said, was the first step in the right direction. One must put away excuses, crutches, and justifications, and instead, frankly admit, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Having then acknowledged the reality about one's actions, the door is opened for forgiveness. God is light. And if we are to receive his healing, we must step out of the shadows and into his light. We then underscored and highlighted and put in bold typeface the exceeding goodness of the Lord. Our sin, however ugly and hateful it may be, does not necessarily have to crush us because the Lord is good and ready to forgive, the scripture says. It is his property to be merciful and compassionate, not simply to the godly, but to the ungodly, to you and I. And this is our hope. Because this is our Lord, we are not consumed. And from this, we made a final, and I believe the most important point, And it's that the Lord's kindness brings us to repentance and not our repentance bringing the Lord to kindness. His grace always takes precedent. It is always prior and antecedent to our efforts of reconciliation. The Father sent His Son and His Spirit not because man made some motion toward Him, But because even while we were sinners, he loved us. And so we can come boldly into the light, knowing that the Lord is already on our side. He is already reconciled and favorable to our cause. And I want that knowledge, the knowledge of God's unceasing goodness, to proceed and permeate our message this morning. Because, 
the passage compels us to take another unflinching look at the nature of our problem. That sin is not something we merely do, but something that constitutes our nature. And that reality, apart from God's grace, is enough to lead one to despair. And apart from God's grace, we're liable to respond to it improperly. But, on the other hand, in God's presence, we can approach that devastating truth about ourselves in a manner that leads to edification and wisdom rather than the opposite. So remember, as we plunge, uh, plumb rather the depths of our human nature, God's grace is already there. And with that in place, we can proceed to our text this morning, verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 51. It says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Confronted by the prophet, the king David admitted his guilt. He had covered his guilt. He had um, hid his actions from sight. But finally, he broke. He could resist the faithful promptings of the Spirit no longer. All the deception that he had stored up in his heart came pouring out. At once, a relief, and at once, a horrific realization. He admitted, I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. The whole matter, in all its ugliness, was out on the table. For the first time, David faced his actions for what they were, evil. But, in acknowledging the truth about his deeds, the king discovered a deeper, more pervasive problem. His actions did not account for themselves. Rather, they were pointers and signals to something more sinister. His actions had come from a source. They were not spontaneously generated. And that source, he found, was his very nature. And we'll come to that in a minute. It's important, however, that we make the same recognition David did. One's deeds, whether good or bad, whether righteous or unrighteous, proceed from their inward person. Our Lord warning against hypocrites, those who cloak their unrighteousness in a righteous appearance, said, you will know them by their fruit. There exists, in other words, an unavoidable consistency between one's outward actions and one's inward content. The outward actions reveal the inward content, and the inward content gives rise to the outward actions. The Lord goes on, Matthew 7, verses 16 and 18. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. And so, 
As bad fruit is indicative of a diseased tree, as bitter water is indicative of a poisoned spring, so also sinful actions are indicative of a deeper perversity within. And this is the inescapable conclusion that the scriptures lead us to draw about ourselves. In the last resort, our actions are not accidental or happenstance to who we are, but the very evidence of who we are, the outward manifestation of our most inward parts. And as much as our modern thought would like to explain one's actions by their moral conditioning or uh, by their uh, social setting and the like, it is ultimately a matter of what's on the inside. That is the wellspring from which our actions proceed. So it's not enough then to merely admit that one's actions have been evil. Because that might leave room to pin the responsibility for them on something else. Rather, we must go further and recognize that our actions proceed from a corruption within. Return to the king's words in verse 5. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So prior to having committed any sin... David admits that he came with sin into the world. It preceded his birth. It was present with him in the womb. And so what does this mean? Only that at the very least, sin is baked into our nature. It's not a condition that one picks up or that one acquires by some unrighteous transaction. Rather, it's something that one brings into the world With them, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, sin dwells in me. And so David's chilling discovery, the perversity, that perversity is ingrained into his nature, is what the church has come to call original sin. It has gone by many definitions, but minimally defined, it means that an ugly wound runs right through the middle of things most especially the human heart. Reflecting upon his time in the Soviet gulag, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote, The line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. Original sin is not so much about individual sins and vices, though that is surely part of it, as much as it is about a tragic deformity in our human nature. We have come apart, so to speak, and we cannot put ourselves back together again. And it's called original sin because it goes back to our very origins. Our ancestral parents, in their disobedience, radically altered the trajectory and development of human nature. Not only for themselves, but for all. Introduced to something foreign to man's nature, sin spread and infected the whole mass. 
Though one man sin, through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. It's an inherited condition. As Bob Dylan once sung, Temptation's not an easy thing. Adam given the devil reign. Because he sinned, I got no choice. It runs in my vein. A close analogy is that of a newborn who picks up their mother's addiction in the womb. Our shared human nature is, as it were, a child birthed from sin's womb. Another analogy is one born into slavery. Many generations back, our forefathers sold themselves into sin's care. And as their descendants, we've inherited their miserable estate. And it's called original sin because it's sin that comes to characterize our human nature. The Calvinists use the term total depravity. Um, It's a doctrine that's greatly misunderstood in popular theology. It does not mean utter depravity, that there is no capacity for good in human beings, that every person is as bad as they possibly could be. Rather, what it means is that sin affects the total person. Calvin himself says, Original sin then may be defined a hereditary corruption and depravity of our nature extending to all parts of the soul. It means that the entirety of our human nature, will, thoughts, emotions, even our bodies, are tainted by sin's influence. The problem, in other words, goes all the way down. No part of the human person is free. Our passage, however, leads us to put a finer point on the matter. Consider the solution. Psalm 51, already on the screen. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. So by diagnosing the problem by its solution... It leads us to believe that our condition is rooted in the opposites of truth and wisdom, which would be falsehood and foolishness. It's not so much that the human heart is utterly corrupt without a trace of goodness, but rather that the human heart is bound in foolishness and riddled with falsehood. Now this can be better demonstrated than explained. Take for instance... The moment you confess your sin. The moment where, maybe not that you confess it, but that you realize what you've done. What is it that you tell yourself? It probably goes something like this. What was I thinking? How could I have been so stupid? Why do I keep doing this? Our actions, most particularly our sinful actions, defy reason. They resist simple explanation. Quite simply, we do not know what makes us do what we do. The Apostle Paul speaks for us all when he says, Romans chapter 7 verse 15, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but the very thing I hate, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. The human spirit 
if given a long, penetrating look, is a dark, irrational place. One gets lost in its labyrinth, looking for explanations and answers. They are led to confess what I am doing, why I keep acting this way, why I can't seem to get it right, I don't understand. It speaks, I believe, to those two wellsprings of sin, foolishness and falsehood. And in regards to the first, foolishness, it might be better described as stupidity. That is, an incapacity and an inability to take the right course. The human heart is a senseless thing. It lacks good judgment and understanding. Now, I'm sure we all know people who can rightly be described as foolish. Right? Maybe it's ourselves. No matter how much good counsel, prompting in the right direction, and sober warning, it seems they cannot get it together. Their actions, to someone wise and discerning, comparatively, are inexplicable. You can't understand why do you, why do you keep doing these things. And it may be that way with moral decisions. It may be that way on a job site, someone just simply trying to learn, or even in the smallest matters. The point is, we know what a foolish person looks like. We, we can see that. And that's, that's about the best analogy to the human heart. It's dumb. It's unable to learn. Take, for instance, Psalm 32. Many commentators believe Psalm 32 is the uh, other psalm that David had written in relation to his sin with Bathsheba, Bathsheba and Uriah. He says, Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. I will instruct you and teach you and counsel you, the Lord says to David, but you cannot be as the horse, or as the mule, which have no understanding. These animals, especially the mule, have neither sense nor understanding. Therefore, they have to be harnessed with bits and bridle to hold them in check. And that's a picture of, da- uh, of the human heart, of David's state prior to committing sin. Oblivious to God's instruction, unable to heed his counsel, The human heart returns again and again to its former vices and habits, right? It's foolish. As a dog returns to its vomit, the proverb says, so a fool returns to his folly. That's the human heart. The other companion to the human heart is deceit. And like foolishness, it defies explanation. And in my estimation, this is the heart's greatest and gravest problem. One goes into the depths of their heart's an attempt to figure out what's actually going on there. And it's like a foreign landscape. It does not play by the same rules that we do up here. It does not operate according to some discernible principle. There is no hope of making sense of it. It brings to mind the prophet Jeremiah's words. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Indeed, who can? Who can understand themselves? Who can understand why we do what we do? 
And this, in the end, is why the doctrine of original sin is so pragmatic. Without it, we cannot understand ourselves. It was the poet T.S. Eliot who once said, with the disappearance of the idea of original sin, with the disappearance of the idea of intense moral struggle, the human beings presented to us tend to become less and less real. To no one's hereditary corruption, to no one's innate propensity to sin, is to live in reality. The awareness that things are disordered and that, more specifically, we are a part of that disorder is essential to living wisely and compassionately in this life. And on the other hand, to be unaware of one's inherent disorder is to live in a false reality. It promotes an implicit trust in our nature that can only mislead us. Ignorant about the truth of ourselves, we come to believe that we can perfect ourselves. All that's needed is a bit more doctrinal instruction, a bit more willpower, and a bit more sincerity. This is, in large part, the message that we preach to ourselves. Change for the better, either corporately or individually, is only a few minor alterations and tweaks away. Just a few things, maybe your environment, whatever. Just change it, and you'll be all right. Now, contrary to intuition, that conception of human nature is absolutely crushing. How can we tell someone that? How can we tell ourselves that? And live with our repeated failure, according to this scheme. In denying man's utter brokenness, it denies him compassion. There's no comfort in being told that you can do it. That you can be all that God wants you to be. Human nature, being so readily fixable, there's no reason for your failure. It simply shouldn't be happening. The problem's all on you. But an understanding of original sin, however, naturally makes one compassionate to themselves and to others. It seems that much of our self-hatred is rooted in an overly generous conception of ourselves. No generation has touted the inherent goodness of man more than my own, and yet no generation has struggled so deeply with its own sense of worth. One loathes and despises themselves because they believe they're capable of more than they really are. It's a naive self-trust. On the other hand, knowing one's inherent corruption, that no matter your best efforts, that no matter your most sincere devotion, no matter how pure your motives, ultimately your efforts are bound to fail, that knowledge is in a strange sense comforting. It's freeing. Now it doesn't excuse us from our sin or somehow make it okay. We're all broken. I have no responsibility in the matter. That's far from what David's articulating. Rather, it takes the burden of some sort of ridiculous expectation off of our shoulders. We understand who we are. That as the scripture says, we're dust. It's such an important knowledge to sink into the soul. And when it does, one can live wisely 
and truthfully in the world. When one forgets who they are, when one goes about their life forgetting they carry with them this deep running problem in their nature, they're liable to walk right into trouble. They're liable to walk into the very situation they would like to avoid. There's a foolishness, right, that enters there, and there's an airiness, uh, a lack of gravity about who we are. But then, on the other hand, when we do understand who we are, it brings about a soberness, a wisdom, a prudence in the way that we live, in the way that we behave ourselves in the world, and in the way we treat other people, recognizing that the problem that runs so deep in us runs just as deep in them. So, what's the upshot of all this? Quite simply, it's a deep reliance and trust in God's mercy. Really, that's why we've taken such a deep dive in original sin. Not to grind our faces in it. Don't misunderstand this. Not to conjure up guilt. That's not what we're after. But rather to understand the insanity of trusting in ourselves. And thereby come to trust in God alone. Because what is impossible with man is possible with God. A robust understanding of one's corruption does not consign them to depression and melancholy, watching TV and popping Prozac all their lives. In truth, it should lead to just the opposite, a deep confidence in God. Because whatever might be said of our wretched condition, it's said against the backdrop, the immense and immeasurable backdrop of God's power and grace. What is our weakness to the Almighty? What is our deceit to the truth itself? What is our habit for self-destruction to the giver of life? And this reliance is demonstrated in the words of the psalm. From beginning to end, it's entirely Godward and God-directed. The king is not fooling himself any longer. He understands the seriousness of his corruption. And he unreservedly casts himself upon the mercy of God. Listen to what he says. Be gracious to me. Wash me. Cleanse me. Purify me. Make me hear joy. Restore to me. Sustain me. Deliver me. There isn't a hint of self-reliance to be found. Instead, he knows that if there's to be any change in me, it must come from him. And thus having come to this state despairing of his own abilities, utterly casting himself upon the Lord, transformation is possible. He prays, Psalm 51, verse 6, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Having traced his actions back to the source, David has discovered that there lies an entrenched root of sin within him. He understands now the thorough and comprehensive healing that he's, in desperately, that he's desperately in need of. Create in me a clean heart, O God, he says. The spring from which his actions flow is poisoned. The solution is that the spring itself must be purified. His impure heart from which spring impure imaginations and actions must be replaced and superseded with a new heart. He recognizes that his nature being so thoroughly corrupted is fit only for condemnation. A new nature, a new heart, 
A new spirit must be given. But this the king prays in hope. That is, his prayer anticipates the gospel. Or rather, it anticipates the need for the gospel. He is given insight into the true nature of the problem and therefore the true nature of the solution. A new nature must be given. And as the biblical narrative progresses, this need moves from the background to the foreground. It becomes more and more prominent. And as it does, God promises to alleviate the festering problem. He says, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within their heart, within them and on their heart, um, I will write it. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer, declares the Lord, will the law be a reality external to the heart, able only to accuse and to point, but rather it will be within the heart. In other words, God will overcome human impotence and inability by placing the law, by putting a new principle within man's heart. The law reigns from within. The promise, excuse me, the prophet Ezekiel has promised something similar. He says, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 27, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Here, the same reality that Jeremiah testified to is depicted in different terms. Rather than the law entering the heart, the Lord is to give His people a new heart and a new spirit. The former heart of stone, incapable of fidelity to the Lord, is taken away and replaced with a heart of flesh. A heart that is sensitive to the Lord's promptings and guidance. But still further... All this imagery is superseded by what comes next. The Lord has promised to put His own Spirit within us. And this all anticipates the descent of the Holy Spirit given at Pentecost. And this is our hope. The Son has accomplished redemption, purifying us from our sins, and returned to the Father. But He has not left us as orphans. He has given us His Holy Spirit. And He, the Spirit of the Father and of the Son, regenerates and renews our formerly corrupted natures. We compared our inherent sinful condition to a poisoned well, incapable of sprouting only bitter water. Jesus, however, speaks of the Holy Spirit as a well of His own. John chapter 7, verses 37 and 39, the Lord says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. 
the rotten and stagnant well that is our nature is encompassed by the Spirit of God, or as Jesus names him, living water. And this fount of living water, and this is the hope of the gospel, is implanted deep within our innermost being, deeper than that root of sin. And from there, Jesus says, it pours out and pours forth into eternal life. And it's an amazing picture of what the Spirit is meant to perform in our lives. The roots of the tree are healed, and once again, we can bear fruit pleasing to God. Love, goodness, gentleness, self-control. The poison spring is purified, and from it, hatred and strife are purged. And instead, what proceeds is that which is noble, that which is beautiful. Death is supplanted by life. What the law could not do, because it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and He condemned sin in the flesh, and He gave us His Spirit. And so we ask, reign in our hearts, O Holy Spirit. And I have nothing else to say here other than to read you Jesus' own words. This comes from Luke chapter 9, chapter 11, verses 9 through 13. Hear the Lord's promise. He says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of your fathers is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children... Hear what the Lord says. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Let's pray.